Good morning. Or evening for those in Europe. Thanks for joining. Yeah, Gunda, Rene. I can't see Hans, but I think Hans is in Germany too. Okay. You know, this talk happens in the context of um, the ordination that will happen tomorrow morning in on the front lawn of the Boulder Zen Center. And uh, some of you have maybe heard this announcement that Brian Coley, who is sitting here and is part of the residential Sangha at the Boulder Zen Center, will take monk and priest ordination. And Ray Louie, who's on the Zoom, in the Zoom Sangha right now, will take uh, the precepts in, in a lay ordination. So I think it makes sense for me to talk about that a little bit. You know, ordination means basically two things. One is the giving and receiving of the precepts, of the 16 bodhisattva precepts. And then it also means a commitment to a life of practice. Not in some general and abstract way, but in a concrete way with this teacher, with this teaching, with this sangha. So it is a commitment to making my intention of practicing, of relating to my experience in a transformative way, making that real within the real circumstances of my life. Like, I'll have to make choices. I can't be part of every sangha. I can't be looking at every teaching and so forth. So it's basically these two things. And um, it's a little bit unusual to have the monk ordination together with the lay ordination, but under COVID conditions, you know, we're glad that we're making it happen at all. And uh, we have to do it outside and we're living on a busy street and we're doing it at eight o'clock in the morning and it's being kind of cold. So anyway, something to look forward to, a refreshing experience. And, um, but really it made me think that there isn't some essential difference between a monk and a lay ordination, the way we are practicing this in the West. Because the uh, fundamental enactments of taking the precepts and committing to a life of practice are the same. So you could say, well, then what's the difference, you know? Well, it's a shaved head, and but what does it mean? Um, for a monk, priest in our lineage, to be a monk or priest in our lineage means to um, live your life with, for, and through the Sangha, which really is a matter of what kind of role am I taking in life. I'm making it my life 
maybe actually just for a period of time. So right now we're settling on four years as an initial commitment. I'm making it my life to serve the Sangha. And hopefully the Sangha in turn supports that kind of commitment because this is what makes it possible to have a space like the Olga Zen Center um, and to engage in the teaching and so forth. Now I want to look at the precepts, like this first enactment of receiving the precepts. They're given, right? they're given by the tradition through the teacher. And then the question is, how are they received? You're not receiving the precepts once. You're receiving the precepts, you're making the commitment to receive the precepts in every moment. So, you know, when you receive the precepts, the, the first step, a really helpful first step is to know them. So, this is actually, I don't know, this, this has become difficulty, uh, difficult in our culture. In an oral culture where Buddhism originated, you know, the way you learn something is just by having it be repeated. When you read the sutras, it's like everything gets repeated over and over again. It's like now in a modern version of a sutra, you like you see the dots like dot 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 because they have to take out all the repetition. <clears throat> because it's it's tedious to read that way. We're not used to it. And now, you know, you can look everything up on the internet, so it's not necessary to memorize anything. So it atrophies the capacity to Memorize something atrophies. That's normal, you know. If you don't use it, you lose it. But Buddhism comes as lists, as you have noticed. If you're a student of Buddhism, you've noticed everything comes as lists, like the four this and the five that and the eight such and such. And it's like... It looks a little bony, you know, it's like four this and five that. And you know, who wants to who wants to like hold these lists in their mind? I do. I think it's like it's a phenomenal teaching device. A list is a phenomenal teaching device because you can actually memorize it. It's like a mental enfolding and unfolding tool. Enfolding and unfolding tool. Condensing and expanding. You have a list of four and the four words or the four phrases just, they just pick up all this experiential richness that's behind it and they and each each item on the list reminds you that you can unfold into that richness and then you can contract it or condense it and then you can 
put in your pocket, so to speak, you know, and walk around with it. It's it's phenomenal. So if you want to study and practice the precepts, it's good to memorize them, you know, really. Just as it's good to memorize the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or the Five Skandhas. It's a start, you know. Ideally, when you listen to the teaching over the years, they just it just sinks in. You just know this list and that list. And, and the expanding happens, you know. The teaching gets unfolded and then you enfold it and you have a little label for it. It's not about the label. It's about the unfolding. The label is just kind of like a trigger. Okay, so the 16 Bodhisattva precepts are to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And I'm not going to look in at this too uh, closely in this talk. But this, those are the first three, the three refuges. And then there are the three purifying precepts. And the three purifying precepts are to refrain from unwholesome action. Or you could say to do no harm. To do wholesome action, or you can say to do good. And to live for the benefit of all beings. Yeah, it doesn't get more basic than that. As it's said somewhere in the Dhammapada, it says, this is the teaching of all Buddhas. To do, to refrain from unwholesome action, to do wholesome action, and to live for the benefit of all beings. And then there are the ten grave precepts, and the ten grave precepts unfold what it means to refrain from unwholesome action. Not to kill, not to take what is not given, not to misuse sexuality, not to lie, not to intoxicate body and mind, not to slander others, not to praise self in expense of others, not to be possessive of anything, including the teachings, the Dharma. Don't be stingy of the Dharma. <clears throat> not to harbor ill will and not to abuse the three treasures. So there it loops back to the three treasures, you know, not to abuse the three treasures because you've just taken refuge in them. If I get to it, I'll make a little comment on that because it's kind of obscure abusing the three, three treasures. What's that about? In my last talk, uh, two weeks ago, I said I was a reluctant priest. And I, I kind of uh, surprised myself with seeing it so publicly. You know, it's like, uh, you know, here I'm sitting you know, with this stuff on and tomorrow there's an ordination. And so am I doing this as a reluctant priest, like the ordination? No. So I want to say a little bit more about it. But I did say, um, instead, 
I'm an avid student of experience. <clears throat> and I really, I really think that, that Zen Buddhism, for me, and it's not the only way to do this, but Zen Buddhism also with its traditional presentation, you know, through robes and ritual and so forth, is a way, is an effective way to study experience. And I said in the talk two weeks ago, I said, it's not just studying experience because you could do that as a philosopher or as a scientist. It's about studying experience in a transformative way. The interest to study experience when it's a Buddhist study is infused with the intention to transform that experience. And you want to ask yourself if that's the case for you. What is your longing to transform your experience? This is the seed of practice. We are practicing to transform our experience. In order to transform our experience, we need to understand it well enough. And the direction of transformation is, you could say, what Suzuki Roshi calls the inmost request. At least that's my interpretation, my experiential interpretation of it. There's a longing, there is an inmost request. There is, you know, sometimes you read in the koan literature or the Zen literature, to pacify the mind. How do you pacify the mind? So one way I am arriving at unfolding this is to say, this transformation is in the direction of liberation, wisdom, and compassion. This is, this is, our, this is our, and of course it's generalized, but this is our inmost request. Maybe for you, compassion is emphasized. Maybe for you, liberation is emphasized. But in my view, they're interrelated. You can't have one without the other. The precepts are about this transformation. If the precepts are not about that transformation, they're, in, they're empty. So when I say I'm a reluctant priest, maybe you could, I could say I'm reluctant toward how our culture treats religion. Because in my, in my observation, religion, the starting point for religion in in our culture is belief. You know, here's the set of beliefs. Please believe this stuff, and then you can be part of this congregation, of this community. And, and what I'm emphasizing here is when I speak about transformative phenomenology, I threw out that word two weeks ago, Phenomenology meaning studying your experience and then with the intention to transform it. This is not starting with belief. This is starting with not knowing. 
I don't know what this experience is really like. It's so complex. It's so intricate. It's so subtle. I can never reach it with words. That's okay. And yet I need to transform it. I know I need to transform it. So I'm going to study. And I don't have fixed beliefs about it. That's not the starting point. And hopefully it's also not the end point. So there's an, this is opening your, this is, an, this is a truly open mind. An open mind toward how experience unfolds from moment to moment. Now, a kind of surface level understanding of the precepts is that you take them on and you refrain from killing, stealing, misusing sexuality, lying, intoxicating body and mind and so forth. Because if you engage in all these activities, you're wasting so much energy, you will end up with such a cumbersome difficult life that it's not possible to study your experience that way. It's just not possible. So, you know, basic advice, don't do all this stuff because then you actually have the energy and clarity and subtlety of mind to study your experience. And you can, you can watch out for whether that's true in your experience because it's like when you break the precepts, you lose energy. When you hold and maintain the precepts, you gather energy. This, this is something to find out. You know, Don't take my word for it. Is that true? This is something to verify in your own experience. But you know, when you do something wrong breaking the precepts. My experience is, let me talk about myself. When I break the precepts, my mind is occupied with that. When relationships are strained because of the breaking of the precepts, I'm investing energy in repairing that relationship or going around the difficulty or, you know, it's, it takes energy to deal with the consequences of breaking the precepts. Now, when you do it all the time, your life is a mess, period. <clears throat> but it's also important to recognize that our, we are mostly maintaining the precepts or holding the precepts already, you know, those of us on this, on this, call right now, this Zoom call, hybrid Zoom Tatio experience. <laughs> We're not killing people. We're not stealing stuff. We're not going around lying every day. So our our study of the precepts becomes more subtle. We're already existing within the realm of the precepts already making use of living 
a life that upholds us and others in a positive, energetic way. So I'm, I want to I want to see if we can go to this more subtle level. You know, um, when you don't start with belief, you, you don't start with knowing what evil is. <clears throat> what is. What is evil? What is harm? Really, don't make assumptions about it. What is, what is evil? How does evil arise in your experience? How does harm manifest? Buddhism gives an answer, you know. Buddhism says that harm is rooted in three poisons. Greed, hate, and delusion. And so these are big words, you know, greed, hate, and delusion. And, you know, when you, when you just relate to the surface of it, it's like, that's what other people do. I mean, I, I don't. I don't, I don't do that stuff, you know. I'm not greedy, hateful, and deluded. I mean, I know some people, particularly some on television who are, but I'm, I'm not that. And yeah, if you read greed, hate, and delusion in these big ways, like what constitutes being really greedy? I mean, you have to be, have, you, you have to like accumulate billions, like some people in our society do, you know, billions is inconceivable. But anyway, people do that. So is, is that, that constitutes greed? Hate, Does, hate, you know, it's like, You have to like be an anti-Semite in the 1930s in Germany to qualify for hate or a racist in America or something. You know, that it's that that's what the level of hate is before we start using that word. <clears throat> or delusion, you like you really don't know left from right. <clears throat> no, it's like it's actually really important to again, do this study of experience. And the way I like to do it is like, I want to find out what's the gesture, the 
enactment, the body-mind enactment that is at the root of greed, hate, and delusion. And when you ask it this way, you will find that you carry those poisons right, you know, in within you. They are part of being a human being. And the way I like to say it, and some of you have heard me say this, but I'm using it in this context now, greed is rooted in the gesture of grasping. And hate is rooted in the gesture of resistance, you know, pushing away. Separating yourself. And delusion is rooted in this very simple mental operation of conceptualizing experience. Replacing actual experience with a concept. That's the root of delusion. Instead of actually being in touch with what I'm experiencing, I go with what I already know. We do this all the time. And when you then invest what you already know with belief, you are deluded within delusion. So how does grasping, which is a normal gesture, you know, you take something, you grasp it, how does that turn into greed? Well, when you can't stop taking it, when you repeatedly take it and then you hold it here and then you can call that attachment, you know, now I and that thing that I'm grasping are not separate, like it belongs to me. It's me. I have to have this. If I don't have this, I am fear for my life. You take my job away, I think I die. You, you tax me more, oh my God. And hate is pushing away, you know. I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this experience. I want to separate myself from this experience. <clears throat> we, we, you know, it's like sometimes the way I think about this is like when you push something away, if you stop doing it, like it really comes at you. So, you know, like there are all these discomforts in life and we really don't want them. There's this koan that I brought up uh, a while ago. When cold and heat comes, what do we do? What do we do when cold and heat comes? Dungshan, you know, who responds to the monk says, well, why don't you go to the place where there's no cold or heat? Yeah, that, that's a real fantasy. Like, that's where I want to be, where there's no discomfort, where I don't have any unpleasant sensations. 
Yeah, who doesn't want that? Well, because, because it's not that way, I need to keep certain experiences at bay. And that means, when I say certain experiences, that means certain people, you know, and certain objects and certain situations that I can't go into because it's not really about the people or the objects or the situations. It's about the sensations that arise in me that I can't tolerate. You understand? I can't tolerate these experiences, therefore I have to keep... I can't tolerate these feelings, so therefore I have to keep them away. I have to separate myself from them. So look at the precepts of not killing from this point of view. Killing is rooted in resistance. It's like, what, what has led human beings to kill each other? You know, you have land and resources that I want. You know, that would be in the greed department, but anyway, or in the need department, I don't know. I want that, but you stand in the way of me having that. So I eliminate you. <clears throat> Or, you know, you are desiring my wife and, you know, I can't deal with that threat, so I kill you out of jealousy, you know? That's considered a motive in the criminal department. And so forth, right? You can spell this out. It's always about getting rid of someone because they're, they're standing in the way of what I want. So greed and hate, grasping and resisting merge. And there is this impulse to get rid of a part of my experiencing. No, I think I, I'm uh, I'm working with um, some. I call them ecological change agents. It's a group of people in the United Kingdom who are preparing for the next climate summit, which will be held in Glasgow. And so, you know, I, I'm because it's my interest, as you know, but I'm involved with these ecological topics. You know, I am thinking about pesticides. Just recently, I was thinking about pesticides. And what is, what is a pesticide? <laughs> it's two things. It's side means, you know, like in suicide means to kill. But, you know, to see something as a pest is actually the first enactment. It's like, I see this as a pest, therefore I want to kill it. So we're in a situation now where this basic impulse, boy, these bugs are really nasty. They are diminishing our crops. 
we should kill them with pesticides. Where this, where this posture, where this mental posture has led to a situation where insects are now dying at a rate that has to get us frightened that in the foreseeable future, there will be no insects. Or nothing that compares to the abundance of insects that used to exist even still in the 70s, 50 years ago. So just, you know, wanting to solve this problem of not wanting to lose out on some of our crops, we are now endangering all insects. The ramification of this, um, of this, of this posture of wanting to get rid of are vast. <clears throat> So uh, to practice with not killing really, I think, means in the end to observe how I have no tolerance for a certain level of intensity in my experience that is unpleasant. You know, there's this way of speaking... Like, I hate this. I hate this. <laughs> I do, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've confessed to um, a weakness of mine, which I call tool anger, you know. When the tool I want to use doesn't work, you know, I could say that. I hate this. Why is this not working? This screwdriver, this electric screwdriver, battery is empty. Somebody didn't charge the battery. I hate this. <clears throat> you know, that's not a big deal, right? This is just like the battery wasn't charged and now I can do the work that I set out to do. That's, that's not really a big deal. But it fires up hatred in me. It really does. And, and I also, because I have such a hard time dealing with it, it's like, it's like I'm looking for who to blame. You know, who didn't charge that battery? <laughs> so if you're interested in actually dealing with this kind of arising in you, then it's, it's, it needs to be a study of like, wow, there's that little trigger of a tool that's not functioning, a battery that's not charged, and this kind of energy comes up in me? Somebody recently asked me, you know, how do you have compassion for these evil people on TV? That's what I call it, you know, it's like uh, politicians or greedy businessmen. Or... You know, it's important that the degree of greed and hate is really different in different people. It's not like we're all the same. But I think the only way to have compassion is is like when when evil uh, when evil is out of control, greed and hate is out of control, 
in certain people or in certain cultures or societies and organizations. I think the way, the only way to have compassion is to know in yourself that this energy is completely present in you. It's just a little bit more in check. So it's okay to be proud of that. It's like, it's a little bit more in check in me, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So the way to have compassion is like, it is present in these people who I'm observing in their greed, hate, and delusion, and it seems to be out of control there. It's not in checking. So this isn't endor this isn't like compassionately endorsing that oh these poor people are having some problems that I have too. No, the scale matters, but you know, if you want to because a number of people have spoken to me about this, I think if you don't want to lose the connection, it's that it is the same root. And it's important because we can then study, is the solution to get rid of these people? Or is the solution to invite them into investigating their experience? Just the way we're doing right now. Is that the approach? Well, it's a long, it's a long road. It's a long road to invite everybody into studying their experience and transforming it. But this is the path of the Bodhisattva. And first of all, it is to invite ourselves onto that path. And then to, once we inhabit it more fully, then to extend it to manifested and through that invite others like you know gandhi said be the change you want to see in the world well the reason that's an inspiring message is because it takes a lot of patience and resolve to walk that with integrity and not try to take a shortcut like you know well but we're going to, in the meantime, let's get rid of these people who are causing all the trouble. I'm not saying that's easy, but this is the commitment of the Bodhisattva. This is what the precepts are about. You study your own experience. You study how killing is rooted in resistance and then the habituation of resistance into hatred, the desire to get rid of. And you can do the same analysis, and I don't mean just thought analysis, but in your lived experience, not to take what is not given, the second precept, you know, not to take what is not given. How is that taking what is not given? How is that rooted? in grasping the grasping that i know in myself i want this for myself how is misusing sexuality rooted in that kind of grasping for pleasure
disregarding, you know, misusing it means I want this pleasure and I'm disregarding how you feel. <clears throat> because I'm so, because I'm so, I'm so involved with my desire that I can't, that I have lost the resonance with you. How is, you know, how is lying rooted in the resistance to what is or what actually happened? You know, I, I don't want to believe this is actually what I did, so I'm going to lie about it. <clears throat> it makes me feel terrible that I did this, so I want to hide it. I It's normal, you know. But the root of it is like, how is how un, how uncomfortable it is to find out that i'm not free of this problem or this vice you know this weakness so i want to pretend it's not there and and observe how that is subtle you know like certain omissions you know like i tell a story and i'm not really saying the thing that really happened because that looks better <clears throat> again this isn't i don't want to moralize i i don't i'm not interested in moralization i don't want to moralize the precepts i am i want to point to how it is that we need to study these injunctions, these suggestions, these admonitions, how we need to study them on, on, our, on the sensation level of our experience, how difficult it is to be with certain feelings and sensations and how, how much we're drawn to make our experience different than it is. This is the root of desire. I don't want this. I want something else. This is what the the fifth precept of intoxicate not intoxicating body and mind is about. You know, you want to step intoxicating body and mind means, you know, alcohol, drugs, YouTube, Facebook. Please watch the movie The Social Dilemma. <clears throat> Okay, so at the root of intoxication is an addiction is wanting to not wanting to have this experience that I'm having right now and wanting a better experience instead. Like there could be your desire to go on a vacation. I mean, there's nothing wrong with vacations, right? Like, but to hate your work, hate, you know. And to want to go on a vacation is kind of like, it's a kind of intoxication. It's like, let me augment my experience with wishing yourself out of what you're experiencing. And then actually making it happen with, you know, drugs or with distractions Anything can be that intoxication. 
Okay, so that's enough, I think, material to clarify the approach that I, I mean, enough examples to clarify the approach that I'm suggesting to the presets. To conclude, one, one last thought. Suzuki Roshi said something extraordinary. Um, I'm just paraphrasing. But he said something to the extent that a realized mind, an enlightened mind, a Buddha mind, a mind that is rooted in its true nature, spontaneously holds the precepts. follows the precepts, maintains the precepts, lives in accord with the precepts. This is, this is of interest to me in various ways, but let me, let me start with saying, taking, receiving the precepts and treating them as something that is a discipline that comes from the outside, a should, I should, not do this stuff, killing, stealing, misusing sexuality, lying, etc. I should not do this. Do you see how in the word should, there's already a split? There is a deficient self that is not keeping the precepts, and there is a self that puts itself outside and says, but you should. This is maybe a, st a necessary starting point, but I'd like you to examine it. And one way to transform it could be to ask yourself if you want to maintain the precepts, or what part of you wants to do wholesome action and refrain from unwholesome action. If that part doesn't already exist, I think there's no, there's no hope. Buddhism says that that mind already exists. That mind that manifests not killing, not taking what is not given, not misusing sexuality, etc not slandering, not praising self, not being possessive, not harboring ill will. That mind already exists. It's like, how do you... merge with it, locate yourself in it? Well, one way to do it is like, whenever there's straying, there's a return. You know, you, you stray, your practice is to return to it. You stray, your practice is to return. In this movement, the mind that spontaneously holds the precepts, as Suzuki Raji says, gets strengthened and becomes more and more who you actually already are, but haven't fully noticed. <clears throat>
You know, that mind is a mind of, and I, I apologize, this sounds abstract, but it's not meant to be abstract. That mind is a mind of undividedness of self and other. And we've been talking about that, the field of mind, the feel, the feel of the field of mind gets us into this territory where what appears seemingly outside there is actually, I feel that it's appearing in my mind. I feel that you are already what is the truth of my experience. Your presence right now is my experience. When what is present is already my experience and I'm learning to be at ease with it, why, why hate it or why hold on to it? Making a space in which experience as it is, is invited to come and go. This is a mind of not interference, of non-interference and of non-reactivity. Now, The reason we can talk about this is because we know it's possible. We all have the seeds of non-reactivity, non-interference in our own minds. It's not like it's alien, but it doesn't mean it's strong. So practice from this point of view is to water this seed and that's what these purifying precepts are about, to refrain from unwholesome action. When it arises, I watch it and I refrain. I refrain from engaging in this energy of greed, hate, and delusion. And when the mind of non-reactivity and non-interference and allowing is there, I act in accord with it. I do wholesome action. Because that mind of allowing allows everyone, all beings, to be present. They're all, they already are present, you know? It's not like we're adding beings. No, they're already there. To respect that they're already there is the mind of non-interference. To respect that when all these beings are there, some of the feelings that arise in me will not be comfortable. When the bugs are there, there will be uncomfortable feelings. When the people who don't treat me well are there, there will be unpleasant feelings. So it's to, to do wholesome action is first to make space for this field of existence and then to find ways to act in accord with it, which is what the third purifying precept is about of living for the benefit of all beings, which remember always includes yourself. All beings includes this being. It's not self-sacrificing. It is supporting the whole field, which is inclusive of this being. Reasonably, you know, reasonably supporting this being. <laughs> Adequately, 
not greedily. Now, one last thing, and then I stop. I mentioned abusing the free treasures. I don't know what to, sometimes it's called defiling the free treasures. Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You know, speaking ill of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You speak ill of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You abuse the three treasures when you don't, when you don't trust that this mind, this Buddha mind, is already yours and can be actualized. When you say, yeah, but I'm just a sentient being and I can't do much about greed, hate, and delusion, and this grasping and resisting in me, yeah, I know it's there, but geez, it's so strong. I just have to leave it the way it is. Then you're speaking ill of the free treasures. You're not taking refuge. <laughs> or you're taking refuge and say, ah, I don't know. Don't know if I really want to do this. <clears throat> Because it's not an easy path. It's the path of sincere, you know, sincere examination of, of your experience. And sincere honesty with how hard it is to, to, to be in a, in a kind yet strong relationship with the seeds of with the three poisons here in this body and mind. Thank you for your attention. And um, tomorrow we'll do the ceremony in the early morning, if we can manage. So there will be no zazen, at least not hosted by us. Maybe some we'll find someone else to host it. Um, and then... We can only invite a few people in person. But we thought if those of you who want to support the two people who are taking this you know, extraordinary step to make this their path of practice officially, you know, taking refuge, saying, I'm going to do this. Um, if you want to support them, you can come and join us on a in a Zoom Sangha gathering at 10.30 and uh, express your support and uh, come together as a Sangha, which is so difficult under these circumstances of COVID who continue. We don't know how long, but we accept. Okay, wonderful to see you all. Oh, and then I think our custom is that there will be a chance to have some exchange and discussion. So in 10 minutes, if you want to come back, I'll be back and uh, we'll be delighted to have some exchange about the topic. Thank you.